Okay. Well, we're going to uh, carry on our sermon series now. So we're going to be looking at the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, they are at the back next to the coffee. You can go and grab one. Uh, I recommend. And uh, here's my drink. Yeah. We're going to be reading from the Bible in a minute. I um, I will put the words on the screen. I know that Bibles are not always easy to handle. It's a thousand pages of text, and if you have difficulties with your hands, that can be difficult to hold. So I put the words on the screen. Uh, but I do want to encourage you to try and follow along, at least with the main reading in the Bible. Uh, you never know in churches how good the talk's going to be. Uh, but at least if you're opening the Bible and reading it, you're getting something good. Uh, and the number of times that I and other preachers uh, come away from sermons and find that somebody comes up to us and says, oh, that really uh, blessed me this morning and it was nothing that I said, is at times galling, uh, but equally encouraging because God can speak to us even if there's nothing in the talk for you, then he has something for you in the text uh, to speak to you about. So do try and read along with us. Uh, We've just started a series looking at the book of 2 Samuel uh, called Game of Thrones. I'm having fun with my sermon series graphics. Uh, I like to call it Game of Thrones because it is a book about rivals vying for the throne of Israel. It's a a kind of uh, sandals and swords epic uh, which is at times brutal and uncomfortable to read. And so David isn't Israel's first king, but he is Israel's greatest king. He is, if you like, the one by whom everyone else is measured. And his life and his reign is one which is full of event. And we're working our way through at the moment. The point we've got to, uh, uh, David is just becoming king of all Israel. He's been king of a bit of it and fought a civil war against Saul and his, uh, Saul's heirs. And he is now about to be appointed king of the whole of Israel. And we're going to follow on from here David's uh, policies and his life and how things go wrong for him and what we can learn about our lives from it. I always like to give at the beginning of this series a health warning, a a trigger warning if you like, uh, that this is not a very nice book. Uh, to Samuel. There is a lot of uh, blood and guts, literally guts last week, and gore, and uh, it's a brutal book at times. Uh, And it isn't uh, particularly nice sometimes to read and to think about what it is uh, that's going on, and that's actually a good thing, I say every week. That's not something to be shied away from or hidden from. We like to make the Bible very tame, very safe. And something that can be easily added on to our lives without really challenging us about uh, the real heart of humanity, which is very often dark. And it doesn't let us do that. You see, the Bible isn't a very nice book. It's full of people who do very nasty things. And that's because that's what the world is like. It, I like to say this, it isn't nice, it isn't tame, but it is true. And that is more important than either of those. So I apologise if you get easily offended by brutal stories, um, but stick with us and we're going to see something of what God is saying through it anyway. Uh, each week we're looking at David's life and it's important to understand why we're doing that. Uh, we don't look at every king in the same way. Uh, there are kings and queens of England, Edward VII for example, or uh, Henry VI, whom we do not study in church. 
there are kings of Israel who we pay very little attention to in church. And the reason for that is because their lives are interesting, but no more than that. They don't particularly teach us something about God. David is different. David is in the Bible, throughout the Bible, held up as somebody who shows us something about God. All the way through the Old Testament, through the Jewish Bible, there is a continual reference to someone who will be coming, who will be called the son of David. It's as if the, the writers are saying to us, look at David's life. Look at what you see in a kind of seed form in David, and then look for the person who fulfills it. It is as if David is a sunflower seed, and there is one coming who will be that flower fully grown. The son of David who will fulfill everything that God started to do in David. And when Jesus comes, that is what people say of him. So in the stories of Jesus in the Gospels, there is continually this title given to him, son of David. Lord Jesus Christ, son of David, have mercy on me. The beggars shout. Hosanna to the son of David. They shout when he enters Jerusalem. What they're saying is, what we started to see in David is fulfilled in you. In a sense, you are the city David was the signpost pointing to. And so it's important to understand David for that reason. He actually also shows us something about ourselves. You see, David is a very, very flawed man. Deeply flawed. So as well as showing us something about who Jesus is going to be, he shows us something of why we need Jesus. Because if David, the great king, was this bad, how much more do we need a saviour? And in his limitations and in his failures, he shows us why we need Jesus. And each week I'm trying to bring out these two aspects of the story. And this week we are approaching the peak of David's powers. Now this is a moment I've been waiting for. It gives you me a chance to show you a video of one of my all-time heroes. Um, chapter 5 of 2 Samuel is uh, like a YouTube highlights reel of David's career. Uh, it is almost exactly like when you uh, take, if you have sons, as I do, one of the things that I am keen to educate them about is that football did not start three years ago. Uh, and one of the great resources for doing this is YouTube, right? You can go on YouTube, you can find footage of the great footballers of the past. And they give you a highlights reel where they show you examples of what made them great. And recently I've been banging the drum for Glenn Hoddle. Glenn Hoddle is one of my all-time heroes. Uh, this is uh, a highlights reel from YouTube. This is, in a sense, the essence of Glenn Hoddle. Okay. Galvin. So you watch this. Brooke. Yeah, hold on. Oh, what a beautiful piece of skill. What a man. Just extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. No celebrations. 11 minutes gone in the second half, and the Glen Hole that we know and admire so much is shown to perfection. If you. Oh, yeah, watch this again. The turn, the move into space, and at the end of it all, the chip into the far corner. I cannot tell you, if you don't play football, you just have to take my word for it, I cannot tell you how difficult that is to do. Right, and uh, not least of which, Hoddle is playing on pitches that have almost been ploughed, right? They're like my back garden. They're not the sort of carpet you play on now. Anyway, 
I show these videos to the boys because I want them to sense the essence of the person, right? They're not chronological. It's not telling you everything that happened to Glenn Hoddle in his career. It's showing you something. If you want to understand why Hoddle was one of the greatest footballers of England's, uh, uh, in English history, you have to see footage like that and then you get a sense of it. And uh, if I can put it this way, 2 Samuel 5 is a YouTube highlights reel for David. Well, it's here... It takes in everything from literally the first moment David is made the unified king all the way through to a battle that occurs right at the end of his reign. All condensed into one chapter. And the chapter is designed to show us something of why David was great. Right? It's as if they're saying, I mean, Second Samuel, to state the blindingly obvious, is written a long time afterwards. Uh, that's how everybody dies at the end, right? if you haven't worked that out. It's a, it's a historian looking back and writing and choosing the stories of David from all of them. And in this one, he's wanting to, in this chapter, this short section, he's wanting to say, look, let me show you some of the incidents that illustrate who David was and why we love him. And uh, that's what we're going to be looking at. It's the big themes of David's life. See, at his heart, David is a warrior king. This this chapter is about three battles that David fights and what he does in between them. One from the beginning of his reign, one from the middle and one from the end. And they show us that David is most notable for being a fighter. Now that's something that's slightly uncomfortable, I think, in uh, post-World War II West. The idea that the greatest king in Israel's history was a warrior and fought brutal and sometimes necessary battles. And yet actually what I'm going to argue today is that in that he foreshadows basically who Jesus is. That Jesus is also a warrior. That at the heart of who Jesus was and is and who we are is the call to be spiritual warriors. And that's why this is a central chapter. That's why, in a sense, these are the things that make King David's highlights real. I always give a one sentence or two sentence summary of what I'm going to talk about so that everyone can go to sleep. And here it is for this week. Christians are called to be spiritual warriors. Finding our strength in God and overcoming evil. Christians are called to be spiritual warriors. Finding our strength in God and using it to overcome evil. Christians are called to be spiritual warriors. Finding strength in God and overcoming evil. So I've given that a big build up. Now we're going to read it. Um, I don't know where my Bible's gone. Rosemary, have you still got my Bible? Can I just borrow it for a sec? Thank you. Okay. This is uh, 2 Samuel 5. I'm going to put the words on the screen. We're going to read a lot of the Bible now. I'm not going to apologise for that. It's important. So, uh, this is reading from 2 Samuel 5. If you're looking for it in your Bible, it's probably on page about 308, if you're using one from the back. Obviously, if you've brought your own, I have no idea. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and you shall become their ruler. 
When all the elders of Israel had come to David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah for seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites, who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here, even the blind and lame can wall you off. They thought to themselves, David can't get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. On that day, David had said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind, who are David's enemies. That's why they say the blind and lame will not enter the palace. Then David took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the terraces inwards and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent envoys to David along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons and they built a palace for David. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and he exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem and more sons and daughters were born to him. These are the names of the children born to him there. Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada and Eliphalet. There you go. I'm going to pause there so that you can take in how well I said that. Now, also to note, I'm not going to major on this in the sermon, but one of the things we were picking up last week is this fatal flaw in David's life that he ignores God's command that he not take more than one wife. Right? God's command is that the king be monogamous and that he not try and have kids with loads and loads of different wives, which is what all of the other kings around the nations did. And actually this one paragraph here is included because it sows the seed for everything that goes wrong in David's life is included in that paragraph. Right, in his abuse of women, in his abuse of power, in the number of children he has, is, is the key to understanding everything that's going to go wrong. I'm just flagging it up for you now. Spoiler alert, by the way, this story ends badly and then well. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? The Lord answered him, Go, for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. So David went to Baal Parazim, and there he defeated them. As he said, As waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Baal Parazim. The Philistines abandoned their idols there, and David and his men carried them off. Once more, the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, and he answered him, Do not go straight up, but circle round the back of them and attack them in front of the poplar trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the, in the tops of the poplar trees, move quickly, for that will mean that the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike down the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Giza. Okay, now we're going to read um, two readings from the New 
from uh, Jesus and from St. Paul. Uh, so uh, I'm going to put them on the screen. If you want to follow along with them in your Bibles, then they're from Matthew 16, um, verses... I think it's 13, did I say 13? Yeah, 13 to 19, and then from Ephesians 6. But I'm going to put them on the screen as well. Rosemary, will you come and read to us from Matthew? Starting from verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Okay. And then finally, we're going to read from Ephesians 6. Okay. And from verse 10. This is St. Paul writing to one of the earliest Christian communities. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore put on the full armour of God, so that when the evil day comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Oh yeah, I'm missing a bit, sorry. You may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled round your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. last one I'm going to read is from 1 John chapter 3. You don't need to find this. I'm only going to read one verse. verse 8b the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work amen this is the word of God let's think about what it means David is a great general 
Uh, and we are called to be warriors with him. Uh, and it struck me, I normally try and include a video now to slightly lighten up after I've read a lot of the Bible. And uh, warriors need to know what they're doing. And that's not a given. And that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning, is how we can be warriors who understand what we are doing, uh, rather than this man. Now, Field Marshal Hay has formulated a brilliant new tactical plan to ensure final victory in the field. Ah, Would this brilliant plan involve us climbing out of our trenches and walking very slowly towards the enemy, sir? (laughs) How could you possibly know that, Blackadder? It's classified information. (laughs) It's the same plan that we used last time, and the 17 times before that. Exactly! And that is what is so brilliant about it. It will catch the watchful Hun totally off guard. Doing precisely what we've done 18 times before is exactly the last thing they'll expect us to do this time. There is, however, one small problem. That everyone always gets slaughtered in the first 10 seconds. That's right. And Field Marshal Haig is worried that this may be depressing the men attached. <laughs> He's looking to find a way to cheer them up. Well, his resignation and suicide would seem the obvious. <laughs> Interesting thought. Make a note of it, darling. A German spy is giving away every one of our battle plans. You look surprised, Bergetta. I certainly am, sir. I didn't realise we had any battle plans. <laughs> well, of course we have. How else do you think the battles are directed? Our battles are directed, sir. Well, of course they are, Bergetta, directed according to the grand plan. Would that be the plan to continue with total slaughter until everyone's dead except Field Marshal Haig, Lady Haig, and their tortoise, Alum? <laughs> Uh, uh, both all the doors have a large pieces of crooked wood against all the windows. This security leak is far worse than we'd imagined. Yeah. We need to know what we're called to do. We need to know what kind of warrior we're called to be. Uh, the heart of David's reign is his experience in battle. He, we're given accounts of three battles here. One against the Jebusites, who are people holding on to Jerusalem. They were part of the original group, original nations, who uh, inhabited uh, Canaan, where Israel invaded. And uh, they were responsible for terrible, terrible atrocities. He, so David has picked out Jerusalem. It's on the top of a mountain. It's a city which is fortified. You can hear in their taunts uh, that uh, the Jebusites feel that this city is impregnable. That's what was behind that passage, which could be used as a, uh, a kind of uh, byword for not boasting before you've actually won victory, of saying you're so lame, you can't take this city. There's no way you'll be able to get in here. We could put blind and lame soldiers on the walls who could not see or stand to fight you, and you would still be defeated. And so David, as a great general, works out that, no, there is one weakness in this city, which is on top of a mountain, which is that it has to get water from down below. And so he goes and finds the the, uh, well that they've dug and sends his men climbing up it. Actually, you find that this is repeated later on when Israel falls. Uh, the same uh, trick is used by, uh, not when Israel falls, when, when uh, Assyria falls to Babylon later in the Bible, the same trick is used, that they climb in through the waterway uh, and they capture the city. 
See, David has a desire for a stronghold, for a capital city. It's a, it's a political desire. He wants to unite Israel and Judah. This city has the advantage of lying between the two of them. So as well as being uh, incredibly easy to defend and very strong, it, it's a symbol that he has come to unite the nation. And it establishes a base from which the rest of Israel's mission to the Gentiles can take place. You see, Israel is called as a people, if you follow the story through from the beginning of the Bible, is called as a people who will live differently, who will gather the world around them to God by showing them a different way to live. Actually, we think of the Old Testament law, we, we read it and it either feel like it's meaningless or distant or sometimes we think a bit barbaric compared to where we are now. Let me tell you, compared to the world around them, Israel was a beacon of progressive values. The law that they lived by was radically different from the laws of their neighbouring countries. And they were designed to show the people a different way to live and to call them to worship the God behind that that, uh, different way. And David is establishing a city that can then be used to gather the nations together. I don't know if you noticed when we uh, read through it that Hiram, who's the, the king of a different country, comes and starts to build the palace and eventually builds the temple uh, for David and then for Solomon. And it's when David sees that this is happening, that the nations around Israel are being gathered and drawn to them, that he says, I understand that God has established my kingdom because God is now working his purposes out. But before he can do any of that, he needs a capital city. So he he attacks this city. He finds inside it the Jebusites. They are into things like child sacrifices, other practices that we would find totally abhorrent. And God has determined that they can't have a city, a stronghold anymore. And so David uh, takes a group of soldiers up this water pipe and they capture the city and they expel the Jebusites and establish a capital there. David actually outwits them. It's interesting. And the first thing he does, after he's obtained a city built upon a rock that is established as a light for the Gentiles, for the nations, is he strengthens it. He builds up strongholds, positions that are easy to defend. In a sense, in the good times, in the peace, David foresees that there will be a time when Israel's enemies, when God's enemies, attack again. And he knows that in peacetime he has to build up defences that he can then defend. And after that we're given two illustrations of the wisdom of this. Uh, the Philistines, who are another group who uh, have been oppressing Israel, terrible people, on... Uh, come and attack. They land on the plain in the valley of the Rephaim, in the valley of giants, it means. And they land in the valley of giants, and David goes to the strongholds he's built up. And on both occasions, we're told, he asks God what he should do. And God gives him a plan for how to defeat this people lying in the valley of giants. And David takes it and defeats them. Uh, we're given the answer to how David was able to be so successful. And the answer is that he trusted in God. We're told in verse 10 that he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. 
It's tempting to think of David as a great general, and David was a great general. But David himself understood that he was only as good as his relationship with God. Because in the end it was God who gave the victory. We're told again a couple of verses later, David knew that the Lord had established him as a king over Israel and exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. David was a great warrior because he made God his strength and because he understood that God gave him victories not to make David great, but to care for his people. That's interesting, isn't it? And it's a great lesson in military history. It's fascinating to hear stories about how ancient kings worked out that they could defeat their enemies by going up the pipes and coming out. And you can imagine this city, they're all sitting down to drink the water and someone goes to the well and suddenly this Israelite head pops up. You can imagine it being portrayed on a great big sc- on a big screen. I think of the James Bond movie Goldeneye, where they come in through the toilets, uh, not physically through the toilets, through the vents above the toilets. And as a man looks up, a Russian looks up at the minister. Oh no, the, the British are upon us! And it's a bit like an ancient version of that. And it's a great story, but it's a spiritually important story. It's more than just interesting. Because it shows a picture of what Jesus had come to do. You see, this is very often what we find in the Old Testament. Uh, My uh, father, I'll credit him with this uh, analogy, both in case it doesn't work and then you can blame him. And also because I find it helpful. He describes the Old Testament at times as being almost like a silhouette of Jesus. If If I can put it this way, there are some things you see more clearly in a silhouette than you do when you see the person face to face. Mickey Mouse is a great example of this. I'm a big Mickey Mouse fan. If you come to my house, there is a picture up on our bookcase of me meeting Mickey Mouse. I've got to tell you, he's taller than you'd think. Uh, And who knew he spent so much time in France, which is where I met him. But there are some things about Mickey Mouse that are clearer or easier to see when you see him in silhouette. His ears. When you are looking at a picture of Mickey Mouse, I don't have one with me, I'm sorry. You see some things about him. Uh, Obviously his face is much clearer when you see him in the light. But if you see him in outline, all you can see are the ears. And you're struck by how big they are. It's interesting, they're actually perfect circles. Walt does it, if you learn how to draw Mickey Mouse, they're perfect circles. But there are some things in silhouette that you can pick out more easily than you can when you see something in full light. And so it is with the Old Testament and Jesus. David shows us something about Jesus that we can see more clearly in David's life than we can when we see Jesus himself. Partly because when you see Jesus himself, you're like, whoa, there is so much there. All this detail. David strips away all the detail and he says, I just want to show you this one thing. Have you noticed his ears? How big they are? Jesus came to fight and destroy Satan and to liberate his people. The reason we read that that single sentence from St. John is because it's incredibly significant. Jesus' best friend, First uh, John is probably the, the final book of the, of the New Testament, final book of the whole Bible to be written. It's written in about 90 AD. So he spent 60 years thinking about his best friend, founding churches, building them up, being sent into exile on Patmos, being brought back. And eventually, he says, he writes down the things that he thinks the church should know. 
And when St. John, Jesus' best friend, had to summarise why Jesus came, this is what he said. He said, this is the reason the Son of God appeared, to destroy the devil's work. He came as a warrior. Now that shouldn't be a surprise, but again, when you see the full picture of Jesus, you can miss things, miss details. I don't know how many times you've read these words, if you've been in church for a long time, probably a number On this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus is saying, I am going to build a capital city that stands on a rock and that can fight against my enemies. On this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Matthew 16.20 Jesus was building a city in his church that would prevail against the gates of hell itself. He's a warrior. He's establishing a kingdom of believers, of warriors of light, who had keys that would unlock the chains in which the devil has bound these world, this world. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing, Jesus says. We, we skip past it. What he's saying is that he's come as the son of David. He's come in the same way that David came to unite Israel to build a capital city on the top of a mountain which could be used to defeat Israel's enemies who were doing evil and bring light to the world around him. Jesus is saying, I've come to do that in you. You see that thing, that man, that man you think is so great, the greatest king in Israel's history, he took one city, I'm going to build a city out of I'm going to found it on a rock that really can't be taken. And I'm going to use it to prevail against hell itself. Fighting not merely against Jebusites and Philistines, but evil itself. We find too that the forces of darkness were not content to allow this to happen. The Philistines attack. You know, and that's the way in the spiritual life. If you make progress, if you start to establish something with God, if God is using you to bring light and life to your friends and your neighbours, if he finds you bringing hope to those who have no hope, bringing healing to those who are sick, bringing uh, forgiveness to those who are in sin, then he will not like it. The Philistines could see David uniting Israel, and they could see him defeating the Jebusites and building up the city of God, and what did they do? They invaded. What do we find in Jesus' life? He says to Peter, on your declaration of faith in me, I will build an entire church. And what did the devil do? He crucified him for it. Yet in the words of St. Paul, Christ turned their attack back on themselves and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The city established by Jesus exists now. It's not Jerusalem. It's us. It's us. Among all who confess with Peter that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You and I and billions of others are proof that the city Christ took is a stronghold that nothing will overcome.
The story of David shows us the story of Jesus. It's an overture to the symphony of Christ. In turn, this should make us spiritual warriors. You see, this is the this is the kind of what does it mean for our relationship with God point. It means that you and I are called to play a part in being that city. In taking those keys that Jesus gave and in using them to fight the fight he gave us to do. Fight the good fight, Paul says. Be warriors of the light. Put on your armour. Take up your sword. My friends, if you are a Christian today and you are here, if you're somebody who's been following Jesus, you are called not only to have your own life with him, but to do his work in the world. Fight the good fight. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus in the way that we've talked about or that you've seen this morning, then God has a purpose for your life and it is to fight the good fight. We're called not only to be in Christ, but to do his work. He's entrusted us with the tools we need to do it. That's what he's saying, isn't it? I've given you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Paul uses a different picture. He says, I've given you, God has given you armour. Everything you need to do the work of Christ in this world is already yours and ours. He's given us the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. He's given us the scriptures. He's given us gifts to the Spirit. Things that can unlock the very gates of hell. We have in Christ the tools that can free people from despair, that can bring them hope, heal their hearts, save their souls and set them free. This is your mission and mine. Now I began by saying it's not enough to know that you have a mission, you have to know how to do it. That was the point of the Blackadder clip. So I want to share some insights now as we come to the end of our time together. Thinking about the lessons of how David fought as an example for us of how to fight. Now I want to say at this point, I don't imagine anyone here has got a sword at home that you're actually literally about to go out and find someone and fight. If that is you, hold on. I'm saying this for the sake of the tape so that it can be later reduced in court. I am not encouraging people to physically fight other people. And Jesus came and said, when your enemy strikes you in one cheek, turn the other to him. St. Paul said, you know that that's because our enemies are not other people, they are the forces that bind other people. What can we learn from the way David fought then, if we're going to fight spiritually? First, fight the battles you need to fight. If I can put it this way, and I'm sorry for using gender language, man up. Fight the battles that have to be fought. The Israelites have been putting off fighting the Jebusites for hundreds of years. How many children and others suffered in, in Jerusalem during that time? Goodness only knows. Why did they put off fighting them? Well, the city seemed just too difficult. It was on the top of a mountain. 
It was defended, strongly defended, and it couldn't be taken, at least it seemed. David understood something that the others before him had not, which is that through God he could fight and win any battle. And that the nation and that God's mission in the world would not move forward until he fought it. My friends, I wonder what God has been challenging each of us about. What battle it is he's challenging you to fight. What battle seems hard, but you know needs to be fought if you or others are to go move forward with God and to bring others to him. It could be a battle with drink or with addiction. That's a battle that seems too hard to fight for many. But it's one that's necessary if we are to become useful and agents of love in the world. It might be to repent of a particular lifestyle. You know that's not what God wants for you. It might be sharing the gospel with someone you've been praying for. It might be giving away money. You know, that can be a battle that's hard. When Jesus talks about money, he actually describes it as a rival God because he says it grabs your heart and you have to worship it. You have to choose whether you serve it or God. And when he comes across somebody, the, parable, the story of the rich young ruler, if you've been in church for a length of time, you'll know this story, that there's someone who comes to Jesus and he's a great guy, he's got a lot of money, he says, I love everybody, I've kept all the commandments. And Jesus is sitting there thinking, oh, I wonder if that's true. Do you love your, love your neighbour as yourself? So he says to him, I, uh, you're doing great. There's only one thing you lack. Sell everything you have and give the money away. You know, care for other people in the same way you care for yourself. And the man went away sad. Why? He couldn't give it. Couldn't give it away. I'm not saying you should give away all your money. I am saying if you don't give any money to anybody, you have a problem. You're addicted to money. Because you can't give it away, right? How do you know if you're addicted to drink if you can't stop drinking? How do you know you're addicted to money if you can't give money away? Try it. God is able to give you victory in the battle. He is stronger than anything, so don't delay in fighting. A gap of hundreds of years wasted because they wouldn't fight the battle. Saul's life wasted should have been fighting the battle. Second, strengthen in the good times. We need to be people who strengthen our defences when our spiritual lives are going well. When is the time to mend your roof? When the sun shines. Not when the rain comes. That's when you need the roof. It's easy to coast when we feel all is well and we feel close to God. These are the times you need to build up spiritual strength so that when hard times come, we have somewhere to go. When the Philistines invaded and they're landing in the... I keep saying landing. They're, they're marching into the Valley of Giants. David goes to the stronghold he built. Prayer, practice spiritual dis- disciplines while you can. If you're a follower of Jesus in the way we've been talking about this morning, build up your strongholds. Build a habit of prayer. 
My friends, as somebody who has suffered badly with depression in the past, can I tell you, there is nothing so vital when you are uh, struggling with depression than having the habit of prayer. Because you can't intentionally think about what you're going to do. It needs to come as a reflex. The same way you make tea. I I honestly now do not think about how I make tea. I just come down in the morning, flip the kettle on, pour the tea and water into a... I can't even talk about it. Pour the water into cups... Leave it for two minutes. Can't think now. I don't think about it at all. Build the strongholds. Practice the habit of scripture reading. Practice the habit of meeting with others, of being accountable, of coming to worship, of blessing those you meet, so that when hard times come, you have a stronghold to retreat to. When life is hard and the enemy attacks, those strongholds will give you somewhere to go to meet with God and plan your counterattack. You see, if you're part of a life group, I know I'm, I feel like I'm selling them, but I am selling them in a part because I think they're good. If you're part of a group that meets together to talk about your lives and to pray for each other and to study the scriptures together, then when things get really difficult and you have to say, my dad's in hospital or my daughter's uh, run away with her boyfriend or I'm losing my job, there are others there who can pray with you and support you. We can give you money. I mean, we do that for people in the church. Build the strongholds so that when the enemy attacks, when times are hard, you have somewhere to go. Finally, be prepared to fight. Christianity is not a religion for wimps. Nor is it a religion for those who are wanting an easy life. If you don't believe me, if you've come up with something uh, which says that if you follow God and you are seeking Him, then you will be rich beyond imagination, your, building, your business will prosper, your life will be easy, and that's a sign of God's favour, then I suggest you read St. Paul's letter to the Philippians. Right, sit down and read it this afternoon, it will take you 30 minutes. Very easy to read. problem with St. Paul is not that he's too difficult to understand, but that he's too easy. And it's too difficult to do. He talks at length about his life. And it is not easy. And it is not good. Christianity is not the promise of an easy life. It is the promise of a worthwhile life. And of life everlasting. It is the promise of union with God. Of the ultimate fulfilment of your souls. But it is a call to fight. We believe in grace. I'm not saying you need to earn your, your position with God. You don't. But that position should result in you battling for others. It's not easy to pursue a way of love and forgiveness, of purity and power. It's not easy. But there is nothing the world needs more. It's not easy because it goes against the interests of the spiritual powers of this world. It goes against the self-interest and selfishness that binds too many of its people. Jesus had to fight and we will too. In the end, the Pharisees who hated the Romans joined with the Romans who hated the Pharisees because they wanted to kill Jesus. The one thing political, economic and religious power had in common was that they all hated Jesus. Because his message was life and liberation. Slave owners hate those who come to liberate their slaves. 
And you are a liberator of slaves if you are in Christ. Take heart because he who is with us is stronger and bigger and mightier and more powerful and more compassionate and more beautiful and more just than anything we face. And you're doing it not for your own sake, but for theirs. David understood that God had established his kingdom for the sake of the people. If you cannot motivate yourself to fight for your own life, then fight for those you love. In prayer, in compassion, in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Christians are called to be spiritual warriors, finding our strength in God and working with him to overcome evil. Just take a minute to be quiet and to ask God if he's saying anything to any of us and then we're going to sing a closing hymn. Let's just be quiet. Oh Lord, we want to thank you that you came and you fought for us. Lord, we confess that we're weak. You know, David might be a great general, but Lord, I know I'm not. Lord, if he needed your strength, how much more do I need it? I want to pray, come Holy Spirit. I pray for this people here, Lord, that you would pour your spirit out on them and on me. Lord, that we might become forces of light and life, of freedom and of hope. Make us into a warrior church. We pray that you would release those who are in captive in this village through us. Lord, we want to pray against those who are, uh, the forces that bind those who are suffering with mental illness in this village. We want to pray against the forces that bind those suffering with depression and with anxiety. We want to pray against the forces which bind those in sickness and in debt. Structural, personal, spiritual forces. We pray, Lord, that you would bring liberation and hope through us. Make us that city founded on a rock that can storm the gates of hell. I just sense that there's someone here who's been battling with a habit or I don't even know if you call it an addiction, but something you feel you can't break and actually you know you're sensing that God is telling you you need to get through it and you want to pray with someone. I encourage you to come and grab me privately and I'll pray with you about it. If you're a woman, then we'll get uh, some women to come and pray with you as well. And we just, we want, to, we want to move forward and take ground. For the glory of our God and the sake of our people.